Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. Right now, Steve is exploring the important prophecy term, the Son of God. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello, and welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In today's program, we're going to make a transition from uh, where we've been studying for the last number of programs, the term, the Son of God, and now we're going to transition over to a uh, somewhat shorter study of the term, the Son of Man. And this, of course, if you've been following along with us, is part of our current teaching series entitled Important Prophecy Terms Compared and Contrasted. And the reason we're going through these seven sets of terms is to give us a better foundational um, uh, position to be in when we start the overview of the 30 prophetic events that are listed in the Bible that have yet to occur between now and eternity, which we find described in the last chapters of the book of Revelation at the end of your Bible. When we once again get to the point of a perfect state where there is no no death, there's no sin, uh, which is what it was at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. So we're going to see what started out in Genesis ultimately fulfilled at the end of the book of Revelation the two bookends, if you will. But in order to go through those prophetic events, um, we need to understand the difference between some key prophetic terms. And the first of those, point number one in your worksheet, which you can get, you can download it actually from this radio station, whcbradio.org, is the difference between the Son of God and Son of Man. And today we're going to start out in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 7, as we take uh, a look uh, in the new, this is the only Old Testament, this and the next one in Nahum, the only Old Testament verses to establish God, because we are talking about God as a triune Godhead, and the second person of the Trinity, which we refer to as Jesus, the Son of God, which is the, the, the key subject here, because Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man, uh, as it is used in the New Testament. But uh, how it's used and understanding how it's used, I think, is critical to getting a a thorough, proper overview of the flow of God's plan in these prophetic events that are coming up. Uh, So we start out in the Old Testament. So you go to the very beginning to Genesis and then Exodus and then Leviticus and then Numbers. And we're into Deuteronomy, the last of the five books, the Pentateuch, if you will, written by Moses about uh, 1,400 plus years before Christ. And we are going to go to verses 9 and 10. Deuteronomy 7, verses 9 and 10. Deuteronomy is a review, a repeat with much more detail of Leviticus. And Leviticus was written to the Jewish nation about a month or so after they came out of Egypt and they're sitting at Mount Sinai, and they're basically given the law 
basically the rules of how to live uh, with God as their father, God as their king, if you will, um, and what it means to come out from the nations and be separate, uh, not just physically, but more primarily spiritually and morally separate from the nations because all the nations are idol-worshiping nations, and particularly with where the Israelites are at this time because they're getting ready to go into Canaan. This uh, Deuteronomy was written just a very short time, within a month before they crossed the Jordan. But Leviticus was the original one written to the original um, generation that came out of Egypt. But, of course, we know from the Scripture that that generation turned their backs on God. So God um, told them that they would die as a generation. They would die in the wilderness and that the second generation would be the ones that would cross the Jordan and go into Canaan and go into the promised land. So Deuteronomy is a restatement of Leviticus with a lot more detail. And Deuteronomy, frankly, is a is a picture of Israel's present. Well, there's some review of past, the present, and more importantly, the future of Israel. Deuteronomy covers Israel's future all the way out to um, the tribulation, the second coming, and um, the, the millennial kingdom. It's an amazing book if you take the time to study it. So God in the beginning, as you would at the beginning of any book uh, in Deuteronomy, is setting the stage uh, for who he is and what his purposes are. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, it reads, Now therefore, no, excuse me, verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. So you can imagine, as we have spent the time over the last number of programs looking at the Son of God, if you if you would, you could actually put out in the margin here description of the Son of God as well. Verse 9, because of his covenant-keeping, his loving-kindness, and the term to a thousandth generation is meaning forever. Because, you know, if a, if a generation's 30 years, that's, that's, <laughs> that's 30,000 years. Um, so it, it's meaning forever. So his covenant keeping, his loving kindness, and he says, this is all for you who love me and keep my commandments. And of course, commandments, because this is Old Testament, this is um, after the law, the law was given at Mount Sinai, which of course the law doesn't apply to us in the church, but just to, to give us a sense of the context of when this was written. But for us, for all intents and purposes, verse 9 is like describing the Son of God. Now, in contrast, let's go to verse 10. But repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who he hates. He will repay him to his face. So, in effect, if verse 9 is describing the Son of God, verse 10 is describing the Son of Man. Because the Son of God, we know from our study that we've already done, that the Son of God is coming, is a belief that he is God, that he was immaculately conceived between the Holy Spirit and Mary, 
and that everything he says about himself is true. And he says, I am coming to reward you. I'm coming to reward you. I am not coming with any reference to sin because your sin was paid for in a perfect way through a perfect sacrifice on the cross through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So I'm only coming to reward you. Whereas the Son of Man is the term used by people who do not believe that he is the Son of God, and that the Son of Man, we'll find out here very shortly, in the New Testament book of John, is a term used for the the manifestation of Jesus when he comes to judge. And verse 10 in Deuteronomy 7 here is a clear description of judgment in a very horrific way. I will... um, repay you, I will destroy you, and I will not delay. So I can can clearly see verse 9, Son of God, verse 10, Son of Man, even though this is Deuteronomy, written 1,400 plus years before Christ even walked the earth. But this is because it's all brought to us by a God through his Holy Spirit to these writers such as Moses for Deuteronomy who is omniscient, he sees the beginning, he sees the end of all things from the beginning, and he wants you to know the details of everything that he plans to do. So we see an example of that here, because it's clearly talking about the judging aspect of Jesus in verse 10 of Deuteronomy 7. So staying in the Old Testament, I want us to go pretty much to the other end of the Old Testament, to what is called the Minor Prophets. And the minor prophets, if you can find the book of Daniel, you have Ezekiel or Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then keep going to the right, and you're going to find Hosea or Hoshea, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And we want to start thumbing into the uh, list of, or collection, I should say, of the Old Testament prophets' writings, and you'll come across Amos and Obadiah. You want to get to Micah? Uh, or Jonah, then Micah, and then right after Micah, and Micah's seven chapters, and right after Micah is the short um, collection of writing uh, by Nahum, N-A-H-U-M, Nahum, one of the minor prophets, and they're minor simply because of the length of their writings, not because they're not important, uh, suggesting that Isaiah is a major prophet in the sense of being more important while Isaiah is important, he is major because it's um, 66 um, chapters. But nevertheless, uh, Nahum uh, and these other uh, short writings are very important, particularly from a prophetic perspective. But I wanted us to go into Nahum, and I wanted us to go to verse 2. Nahum chapter 1, verse 2. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Now, this was written in the 700s B.C., so this was written 700-plus years after Moses wrote Deuteronomy, and specifically Deuteronomy 7, verse 10. But the verbiage, the writing in Nahum is almost a lift out of there, isn't it? He's talking about being avenging and wrathful, uh, that he takes vengeance out on his adversaries. 
and he reserves wrath for his enemies. So what I want want us to understand here, if we can, is that, yes, God is a loving God. God is a gracious God. God uh, wants to share loving kindness and shower us with loving kindness to the thousandth generation. But he's also a just God because God recognizes through free will that there will be people throughout the generations who will choose not to follow him. They will choose to follow Satan because there's really not a whole plethora of choices. You either follow God or you follow Satan. You may call it another religion, whatever you choose to call it, but it's still following Satan because if it's not the truth of God, it's the falsehood of Satan. You either are light or you are darkness. There is no gray area, and the Bible's very clear about that. There is no gray area. You cannot be good and not be a believer in Jesus Christ. You're either of God or you're of Satan. And so we see that God punishes those who are against him. And when you are against God, you are against his plans, and his plan was to bring himself, if you will, we call him Jesus, but it's God in a human form came down to the earth to offer the perfect sacrifice so that we could be forgiven our sins. And through Jesus' glorious resurrection on the third day, we could then be offered eternal life through our faith in Jesus. He did that for us in a very loving way. And he said, please accept that. I've made it as simple as I possibly can. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that actually is a problem for the world. The world can't believe that something that good is that simple. There has to be something more to it. There have to be strings. I have to work for this. And God is saying through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, through his writings, no, you don't. No, you don't. Simply believe and if you've been with us for the last several programs, you'll recall back when we talked about Peter in Matthew 16, all he did was profess that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And Jesus said, on that profession, I'm going to build my church. And we had examples of building his church in Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch when he uh, was told, all you do is believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you will have eternal life you will be saved. Then we went to Acts chapter 16 and talked about the Philippian jailer um, asking Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And they said, just believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God and you will be saved. It's as simple as that. We even talked about the demons recognizing Jesus as the son of God, the God figure that he is because he is God. The demons recognize that. And they recognized that their punishment was yet future and wanted to know if Jesus had come to punish them, or punish them early by his presence there. At, for instance, the Gadarenes, that uh, area in um, the Galilee in Matthew 8. God must punish. God must punish because God is a righteous God. He is a just God and in equal portions because To be against God, the punishment is so bad. It's so bad. 
Uh, the lake of fire is so bad that he came and died on a cross so that we would have a means out of that, of, of avoiding that, if you will. And that's through faith in Jesus Christ. That's all it is. So while God is a just God and he's an avenging God, he's a wrathful God, he says, it's only because you've refused my grace, my gift, my son, Jesus Christ. That's the whole purpose of him coming so that you could have eternal life with me. So we see these, what you would call, and I, I call, uh, very difficult passages in Deuteronomy 7, verse 10, and in Nahum 1, verse 2, that this is a side of God that we're not told about very much in church. We don't, uh, we're not led to read about it very much. So that when we do touch on it, as we are in this uh, teaching ministry, uh, it comes as somewhat of a shock. It's it's unsettling to hear about this aspect of God that um, some of us may actually admit we we hadn't heard before or had heard rumors about or whispers. Well, it's very true. Jesus and therefore God are as much just as they are gracious. And if we understand that, we see the magnificent flow of God's whole plan. God's whole plan was to subdue and do away with the works of Satan. And he ultimately did that through his son, Jesus Christ. So we want to understand now the justice side of Jesus. We've spent the last number of programs on the grace, the the um, goodness side of of uh, Jesus, the Son of God. And that's not to say that the Son of Man is not goodness, because it's all righteous. It's all done out of love that God has done this. And for God to lay out a plan of justice, a, la- a plan of punishment, it's giving you the opportunity to make the choice, isn't it? So in that sense, even though the Son of Man is coming to judge, the story, the the accounts that were given throughout the Bible are there to help you make that decision that when the Holy Spirit draws you, that you can say, yes, I want to avoid all these plans that God has for ju- for uh, judging the unjust. I want to accept that gift of grace through Jesus Christ. So in that sense, it's all good. But for those who refuse to see that goodness, it's going to be some very abject punishment. So in our next program, we're going to get into um, the first um, New Testament passage, and that's in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, and we'll do that in our next program. But now we want to turn, as we always do, to our Q&A and to continue on with our um, exploring the Bible to understand better the working of the Holy Spirit in the tribulation period. And we had, um, in our last um program made the point that the Holy Spirit during the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation on the earth, remember the church is gone, it was raptured to heaven, so now God through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are dealing with the people on the earth who are principally almost totally unbelievers. In fact, we know they're unbelievers at the very beginning because if there were any believers, they would have gone in the rapture. So at the very beginning of the tribulation, everybody is an unbeliever. Everybody is unrighteous and are living in iniquity. Um, 
So during that tribulation, that seven-year tribulation, the Holy Spirit will function, will manifest himself as he did in the Old Testament because that's leading up to an offer of the uh, gospel of the kingdom. And once again, once the church is taken out of the way, the offer of the gospel of the kingdom will be given again to the world, principally to Israel, but to the world during the tribulation. So what we need to do to understand how the Holy Spirit will work in the tribulation is to understand how he worked in the Old Testament, because it's unlike during the church age that we're in now, where the Holy Spirit, through faith in Jesus Christ, comes into a believer and indwells that believer forever. And we know that from John chapter 14, the book of John chapter 14, verses 15 and 16, tell us that. So we were in our last program going through some Old Testament scriptures to understand how the uh, Holy Spirit worked. And for instance, we were in First First Samuel chapter 16, First uh, Samuel chapter 16, looking at verses 13 and 14, and we saw where Samuel the prophet anointed David with oil, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and it says the Holy Spirit came on David mightily. From that day on, because we find out that when you are righteous, God places his Holy Spirit on you, not permanently, but he puts his Holy Spirit on you, and as long as you are righteous, the Holy Spirit will stay with you. We know that, that it will leave you because of First Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. 13 says the Holy Spirit came on David. Verse 14 says the Holy Spirit left. King Saul, because as we read in previous verses and chapters, um, Saul turned from righteousness where he had received the Holy Spirit to iniquity and unrighteousness, and therefore as a result, God withdrew his Holy Spirit from Saul. So he died in iniquity. He is in Hades waiting for the great white throne judgment. And then we saw that a righteous person could actually falter in the Old Testament and perform what we would call acts of iniquity, but then repent of that. And that perfect example we had is in David, King David, and we went to Psalm chapter 51, Psalm chapter 51, and that is a psalm written by David um, shortly after his experience with Bathsheba, which I think we would all agree was an act of iniquity. And he's asking, he's imploring God in a prayer, which is Psalm 51, please do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So David was acknowledging that just as we saw the Holy Spirit come on him in 1 Samuel 16, 13, we could see him imploring God from his heart. And that's what differentiated David from other kings was his heart was holy God's, that even in an act of iniquity, he could plead with Father God and ask him not to take his Holy Spirit. And, of course, we know that the Holy Spirit stayed with David uh, throughout his life to his death. So we will see David again. He is what uh, we call in the Bible, the Bible calls actually an Old Testament saint. He will be resurrected at the end of the tribulation along with all the other Old Testament saints, people who were counted at right, counted as righteous, Um, by God, they will be resurrected. And specifically, 
the Bible tells us that David will then become, once again, the king over Israel, with Jesus being king of kings and lord of lords. So David will be, if you will, under Jesus, but he will be over uh, Israel, just as we're told in Matthew that the 12 apostles that um, ministered with Jesus, they would be the 12 heads of the 12 tribes during the millennial kingdom. Isn't that amazing that these righteous people would be resurrected and would once again um, retain their roles that they had, in David's case, a thousand years before Christ? Okay, let's look at another example of the Holy Spirit, and that's in Exodus. Let's go all the way back to the second book into the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. And let's go to Exodus chapter uh, 31. Exodus chapter 31. And this is the building, the building or preparation, I should say, preparation for building the tabernacle in the wilderness shortly after the Israelites came out of Egypt. And you'll recall when they came out of Egypt, God caused the Egyptians to be so fearful of the Israelites and wanting them to get out of is to get out of Egypt as quickly as possible because they were experiencing those plagues, those 10 plagues that the Egyptians were led by God to give them their wealth. So as the Egyptians were leaving town, so to speak, the, excuse me, as the Israelites were leaving Egypt, the Egyptians were throwing their jewels at them and their gold and their silver and all of their wealth. So they brought that out of Egypt, and God asked them, if you can find it in your heart, donate those, contribute those to the building of the tabernacle. And that's what they did, and that's why the tabernacle was so ornate. And in Exodus chapter 31, if we look in verses 1 through 5, it says, Exodus 31.1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezael, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in God, in silver, and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings, and in the carrying of wood, that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. So the point here is that God would bring the Holy Spirit specifically on people to give them these spirit, uh, spirit, um, spiritual gifts uh, for wisdom and how, to, how to, to be a good craftsman in understanding and knowledge in all kinds of craftsmanship. So God gave them, well, for lack of a term, almost like perfect skills to make this tabernacle because this tabernacle would be the dwelling place of the Shekinah glory of God among the Israelites. Um, not only in the wilderness for those years, but also at uh, Shiloh for over 300 years. So God would allow the Holy Spirit to come on um, certain people for certain specific tasks during the um, Old Testament. And then although we're not told here specifically in this passage, we'll see in others, that the Holy Spirit would come for that purpose, and when that purpose was fulfilled, then the Holy Spirit would leave them. So we will continue that and look at another aspect of that during our Q&A in our next program, and we'll be in the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers. So we're going to stay in the 
the Pentateuch of Moses um, in the book of Numbers in our next program. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.